Welcome to the Unscripted Authentic Leadership Podcast, a podcast where we are seeking to lead change while also seeking to understand. We are also here as a platform for leaders to come together to unite, develop, and empower other leaders in the areas of business, family, faith, and community. I'm your host, Lafayette Lane, joined by my co-host, John LeBron. And today we are joined by our special guest, guest Jesus Eddie Campa. Put those clap emojis in the comment section, put those hands together, make Jesus feel real comfortable right here on the Unscripted Podcast. He has joined us to have an incredible conversation around the current state of law enforcement. Just a little bit about our, our special guest, Eddie. He is a retired chief of police and current CEO of Leading Through Adversity and AB Strategic Group CEO, Jesus Eddie Campa. Let's get right into the conversation. We're so excited to have you again, Jesus. Uh, just kicking this topic off. This is a very sensitive topic. It is a relevant topic. Uh, it's a topic that some are afraid to have, but we are here on Unscripted. We're not afraid to have those tough, hard conversations. And so I want to kick it off by asking you, Eddie, what are some of the, the barriers to good police community relations between the police and specifically not just the community, but between the police and minorities? And what strategies can be taken to eliminate those? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And, uh, you know, you, you bring up a, a very touchy subject for a lot of law enforcement people. And this is, sure. a, you know, this is something that I'm not afraid to talk about. This is something that I've been talking about since I began my career in 1994. You know, um, yeah. the lack of communication, the lack of empathy, the lack of uh, wanting to to get to know each other. Um, this, the, the lack of procedural justice is, is one of the things that is, is causing the current rift that we're in. You know, there, there's, um, there's several things that law enforcement hates. They hate the way, they hate the way things are and they hate change, you know? So everything just stays, everything just stays the same. So I think that what we really need to do is we really need to sit down and come to communication. And if anybody's familiar with procedural justice and 21st century policing, that's basically what it calls for. You know, and it's funny because people always ask me, well, what's procedural justice? I don't understand what that is. And it's like, well, simply put, it's the golden rule. You know, the golden rule of procedural justice is uh, treat others the way you want to be treated, you know. And um, it's it's that simple, you know, and it's almost um, kind of laughable when people can't just see how how easy this this would be you know um of course you can't just blame everything on law enforcement 99 percent of us are good guys 99 percent of us are trying to do the right thing it's unfortunate that that oil that that squeaky wheel gets the oil but uh you know uh that 99 percent is is out there actually trying to do a good job so i i just think we gotta sit down at the table communicate learn a little bit about empathy and, and not be afraid of learning to know about each other's, uh, the different ethnic groups and, and races. Yeah. I love that response. You said one word that stuck out to me in your, in your response, you said change. Uh, and that's a lot of a word that scares a lot of people. And because of that fear, it brings unnecessary violence. It brings unnecessary things that occur because of we have differences and it's about making those differences uh, not making them where they pull us apart, but our differences that unify us and bring us together. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, um, one of the things that I did when I was the chief of police in East Texas, I created a program called No Colors, No Labels. It was a No Colors, No mm -hmm. Labels initiative. And that initiative was designed to remove the preconceived notion that the community had that the police were racially motivated. And one of the things that we did is we created 
uh, I had a I had a monthly uh, cultural awareness meal, and every every month we highlighted a particular race that made up our community. You know, and uh, so like for instance, the very first one was on, on the Hispanic heritage, and we had uh, you know your traditional Mexican food. We brought in the experts to talk about the the, the Mexican culture, and educate people. And as, as, as the program went on, and it went on for 12 months, highlighting every race that we had within our community, we started seeing people come together because they were no longer afraid of the differences because mm. they understood the differences. Powerful. And, and what they understood was that we had more in common than we did, um, than, than we were any different. Yeah. So if, if people were just to take the time to get to know one another and understand the cultures and the differences and the beliefs, they'll see that they all actually align, maybe a little bit differently, but they all align and we can solve a lot of the problems that way. Sure. Speaking of that, do you think the racial makeup of a community's police department should be similar to the racial makeup of the community it serves? Or do you absolutely. think this is unnecessary? Oh no, absolutely. I've always I've always been a proponent of the workforce should mirror the community that you're serving. Okay. Um, when you have a, it is hard to do when you have a very diverse community. I mean, because it's going to be very hard, you know, if you've got, for instance, uh, Houston community college, uh, their, their Houston community college has over 200 countries that attend community college in Houston. Now they only have 79 police officers uh, on their police department. It's going to be kind of hard to, to, get somebody to represent all those 200 come uh, on the police department. Sure. But that's where that's where the racial empathy and, 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 and you know, and, and understanding comes into place. Cultural awareness is very important. Yeah, you're talking about that, that cultural cultural awareness. We had a series um, back when we first started our podcast, we had a, um, a bias series. We talked about the different unconscious biases, gender bias, name biases, racial bias. Do you think that uh, because research has shown that unconscious racial bias often impacts as human behavior, as you've already alluded to, what can law enforcement do in terms of uh, training, educating or cultivating an internal culture to combat the effect of unconscious racial bias so that it does not affect how police enforce the law? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good question and a very loaded one, because um, it's my opinion <laughs> that um, I believe that we as law enforcement, we really need to go back and retrace our hiring practices. And mm -hmm. and and it goes all the way to retracing our hiring practices, re retracing the level of education that a new officer has when they come out onto the field, you know, yeah. Um so yeah, I mean, we all have biases, okay? Everybody, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I always laugh when people say, I'm not biased, really? Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> you know, I know for a fact you don't like McDonald's, so you're biased against McDonald's. I mean, it, it's as silly as that. It's true. You know, but everybody has some sort of bias. Yes. But I really do think that what we need to do in the law enforcement field is actually go back and retrace our, our hiring practices and um, go back to our selection process, do uh, uh, spend more time concentrating on, on, um, oh my God, on a person's understanding of, of, of different cultures, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and that the relationship is there and that they're 
right for this position. And we have to concentrate more on learning how to de-escalate situations as opposed to escalating the situations. Sure. You talked about those hiring practices. Sometimes from the outside looking in, we're trying to figure out as a community and the minority community, how did this officer even get hired on? Um, because of the actions that they took, they took were so irresponsible. It just seemed like they were just acting rogue or they just didn't have any prior training. What is, what is the hiring process of when you go to be a police officer? Well, you know, and, and that's a, that's a, another hard question because there are very good hiring practices. I mean, you, you, you have to fill out an application. You have to do a psychological examination. You go through a background check. You go through a, an oral board interview. And then you spend, you know, six months, seven months in a police academy training you to all these things, right? But I think that, um, you know, right now, most police agencies, you know, you have to be 21 years of age to, to become a police officer. Uh, a lot of agencies do not require a college degree. And I'm not saying that a college degree is required for the job. What I'm saying is that, you know, and no offense to anybody that works at McDonald's, but today I'm working at McDonald's on my 20th birthday. I turn 21 tomorrow. And on Tuesday, I start the police academy and I get six months worth of training and I'm out on the street mm. for another four or five months with an FTO. And then I'm free to arrest uh, if I have to take human life, uh, resist you from your freedoms. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't trust a heart surgeon operating on my heart if he'd only have had a year worth of experience and training. Right. You know, so I think that we really need to spend more time on our training in law enforcement. But unfortunately, the people that hold the purse strings which are city councils or county commissioners or whatever, every time there's a budget cut, the first thing they do is cut mm -hmm. police training, which is the most important thing, you know? So how do we change that is we have to have people in power that understand the importance of training and education, you know, because that's yeah. a, a better trained officer, a better educated officer is going to make better decisions and, and watch out what he's saying and what he's doing and we should be able to prevent having any of those racial issues once we're out on the field do you think it would help if they delayed so when i was 20 21 22 obviously i was way less mature than now and you know i was probably a relatively mature 21 year old compared to some friends but still let's be honest you're 21 so, but as a 28 year old, you're definitely more mature than 21, 38. And I know, I understand you can't wait till someone's 40 to let them finally, you know, start to patrol, but would it be advantageous then to almost increase the age to 25 or something? Well, you know, uh, it's a lot of responsibility for a 21 year old. It, just, it, just is, it, it is, but then the argument comes out, well, you know, we're sending 18 year olds to the military to fight a war. Uh, that's a lot of responsibility. So you, you can never, that's the problem is we, we're, we're never going to find that right answer because everything contradicts everything. You mm -hmm. know, you're, you're, you're 18 years of age. You're good enough to go serve our country and fight a war. But at 18, you can't be a police officer uh, in your own community to help your community. Uh, at 18 years of age, you can go to war, but you're not old enough to drink. 
you're, it's like so everything just contradicts everything. There, there's no, there's no standard, you know. So yeah. to to say it would be advantageous to let somebody, you know, maybe with at 25 or at 28 years of age, goes back to the training portion, you know, maybe. And, and I know as a police chief and as a state director, I know how hard it is for us to recruit people. Okay, it's very mm -hmm. hard for us to recruit people, especially especially now. Even, especially now. Nobody wants to do this job. You know, police police chiefs, their tenure is anywhere between a year, one to two years right now, um, you know, because we're in a cancel culture. The police chief is running a good agency, but the mistake of one officer mm -hmm. will cost that chief his job. Might not cost the officer his job, but it'll cost the chief his job. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe through prolonging it, saying like, and I don't want to say that you need a college degree. I'm just saying that we need some more training. Maybe, maybe. You know, maybe well, the degree maybe, would definitely make you have to go through a process. It's just age, to be quite honest. Right. Well, um, you know, I mean, a lot of kids, you know, so like my kid, he's going to be graduating high school at 17. Yeah. So, you know, if he did a, a traditional track uh, in four years, True. he would be 21 by the time he came out. Now, right. we would anticipate and hope that if you got through college, it's because you're disciplined. Yes. You're, you're trained. You're a little bit mature. You know how to handle your things. And then that may transition over to to the law enforcement side, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is that I think that once a law enforcement, you know, even an electrician has to go through apprentices. I mean, mm -hmm. he goes to a technical school, he graduates with his license, but then he becomes an apprentice, a German, a, a, a German, Germanman, or whatever they are. But there's like all these different levels before he's actually cut out on his own. We need to find something like that for law enforcement, you know, and and you know. I'm 48 years now, 48 years old now. If we were having this conversation when I was 21, I tell you that this old man here is insane. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Sure, sure. But you look at things differently. So there's a, a man named Jocko Willink, if you're familiar with him, he talks about extreme ownership. And he, he has a shows and so forth. But he I heard him comment on a short film about how much you mentioned the military, but he had talked about how much training they go through. Not just the six to nine to 12 months of training before they go to a field, right. but then the continual training all the time. He basically said 75% of what we do is train for 25% of the actual work. He said, if we could just give the law enforcement 25% of what they do is training, I think he said he thinks it would completely flip um, or would help immensely a lot of the issues. Um, and it was show people, hey, we train like crazy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you No, I, I mean I totally agree with that comment. I, I I did see that that short film where he talks about that. Yeah. yeah my percentages could be slightly off, but that was basically <laughs> what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, but you're you're yeah. close. You're close. And, yeah. and and the thing is with that is that as I said earlier, the problem with that is that every time there's a budget issue, mm -hmm. that's got the police department. Mm -hmm. Cut 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 public safety. So as 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 the chief, you look at your well. You can't cut you can't cut personnel because you're already short staffed as it is. You you can't cut you know fuel costs because you need fuel for your cars. You can't cut maintenance costs. You can't do this. Huh? Well, we don't have time to train anyways because we're so busy and short staffed. So cut training more. Mm. And we've diluted the amount of training that law enforcement gets that it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, it's an investment. It, it's an investment. You know, I mean, even nowadays, you're, you're looking at, at colleges, the universities that are putting themselves out of business because they're looking at it as, as a business. 
hey, come get a bachelor's degree for $70,000. You know, trust me, I know I'm working on a PhD. I graduate next year and my return on investment on that is never going to happen. But I'm 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 about $100,000 in the hole by the time it's over. Sure. And I'm like, man, maybe should have bought a house because it doesn't make me, I mean, another house or something because there's no return on investment. Yeah. So that's what these cities and counties need to do is they're spending all this money on lawsuits and and complaints and this and that is put the money in the training, invest it in the officer that you have, the agency, grow the training and we'll be better off. I hear you talking about the training and the resources. There's a whole idea uh, that I've heard and I've seen from different various social groups such as the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, They are proponing for defund the police. What do you think about that whole idea about defunding the police? Will that help or will that hurt the minority? No, that, all that's going to do is, is, is hurt. It's going to make things worse. And here's the thing is I, I always laugh because people think that this whole defund the police is new. You know, if, 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 if you know the history of defunding the police movement, it actually started in the early 60s and started up in Chicago with the Black Panthers. Uh, there's a matter of fact, there was a movie that came out this year and I always forget the name of the movie and I went to go see it. And I was like, this is an awesome movie for this whole defund the police movement. You know, um, Chicago at the time was an all Caucasian police department. You know, they, they were at war with the Black Panthers. They burned down the Black Panthers facility headquarters. It started this whole defund the, the police movement. But coming to today, I wish people would use the proper term and say reallocate instead of defund. You know, as a police chief or as a police administrator, I have no problem with you taking things away that do not belong in my wheel well, such as as such as as as, as mental health issues. I mean, I have to be trained on how to deal with them. But hey, I barely got trained on law enforcement. You gave me you gave me six months. You know, now you want me to be an expert a psychologist, psychiatrist, you know. You want me to be a priest? You want me to be a doctor? You want me to be a nurse? You want me to be a teacher, a father, a brother, an uncle? You want me to be all of these things, but you don't give me the tools to do it, you know? So, for instance, if you take NYPD, you know, they took, I think, a a big chunk. LAPD took a big chunk from there. But if you actually look, it was a reallocation of funds. It wasn't a defunding. So they took the mental health services away from the police department and put it in, in, put it in, 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 in a different, in a different aisle in the city budget, they just took that money and reallocated it. So there's really no defunding. But when you come in and you, if you're going to talk about defunding and you're starting to hurt the training, the the number of officers we can hire, then there's no place for that. You know, I mean, a lawless society is an anarchist society, and and you know, we we we're we're a nation of laws and rules, and sure. I think mankind in any nation has to have rules and guidelines and you have to have guardians to be able to keep that. And I think that that's what law enforcement should be looked at is as, as guardians and not as this law enforcement. We're here to protect and make sure that everybody is equally protected and served. And the key word there is equally. And I think that's one of the major things that's missing in law enforcement is that while we may be equal, but are we all valued at the same equity level? Do we all have the same equity? And right now we don't. So with the proper training, education, resources, you'll be able to balance it out and you'll have true justice just the way Lady Justice is supposed to be, you know? 
Sure. You talk so how do you get to that story. same? I'm sorry. How do you get to that same equity that you mentioned about? Like, can you expand on that at all? That's yeah. super interesting to me. I'm trying to visualize how that. I I, under, I get what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, but I'm trying to visualize how that is. How do you implement that? How do you how what kind of how do you put structures in for that? Well, one of the places that we start is everybody. The first thing everybody wants to do is blame the police, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's put blame where it really lies. We are unfortunately a nation of systems and a lot of our systems are broken. Okay? Yeah. So if we want to get true equity, we need to get to the root of the problem. And it's not the police department and it's not the citizens. You know, we have a govern a government that's up here that has fractured all of these systems mm-hmm. and we're the recipients of, as they say, what rolls downhill, right? So now we got to take all those systems and align them to where everybody is valued in an equal manner. How do we do that? Well, we have to hope that somebody, um, we start electing the right people. Mm-hmm. We have to start hoping that you know, we can value each other for being human beings and not being a color or not being a difference. I mean, the, the solutions are there. It's just how do we get there? You know, how do we end racism? Well, we've been trying to end racism forever. Uh, we can't seem to do that. But is it an issue of race or is it an issue of equality? I mean, you know, everybody has the same opportunity, but 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 is it equal? You know, there, there's this commercial that I saw the other day, or not a commercial, a TikTok thing that I saw the other day, and I was like, hmm. And it said something like this. It said, it's a lady saying, you know, a bachelor's degree was viewed highly at one time until people of color started getting them. Mm. Now, now it's not, you know, any truth to that? I don't know. Or is that propaganda, which is breaking us apart even further? Mm-hmm. How about how about we all come together and try to find a systematic solution to where we all are value you know value each other for what we truly are? Yeah. But when, but when you have politicians, you know, and, and I don't want to make this into a political debate, but when you have politicians, uh, you know, most recently our former president that likes to throw out this rhetoric about division and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the highest authority in our nation saying these things right. and it's a trickle down effect. And and it's like, you know, come on, bro. Like let's, let's, let's patch things up. Let's not make things worse. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, so to answer your question is how do you do it? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I know there's a systematic way of doing it. We all got to come together. We all got to get along, but, at the same time, we have to fix our, our, our mental our mental health issues. We got to fix our social mm-hmm. economic issues. We, we, we can no longer have um, suburbs versus ghettos, suburbs versus downtowns. Mm-hmm. We have to eliminate all that. And I'm not and I know somebody's going to say, oh, you're talking about socialism. No, I'm not talking about socialism. I'm, talking about, you know, I'm <laughs> right. talking about giving everybody the fair share at the same value. Right. So, John, I hope I, I, I know I didn't answer your question. But I mean, I hope I got a little bit close to answering. No, you're good. I I understand. I was just curious if there was maybe something I didn't know about a possible way to approach to address that equity that you talked about. Because I get it. Um, it's just a it's just a hard discussion to figure out. Is what I'm is my point. It's because there's that line between everybody says we well, can't just give everybody something, versus some people haven't had a fair shot. Like people don't actually realize, and I'm pretty conservative person i'm i'm a no you know my kids don't get any special ribbons or trophies for not winning something kind of guy um but at the same time people don't understand that some communities were literally built by banks 
with the when they were put together. If you research it, people can go research this. Um, it's from John. If you're not looking, I'm I'm about as pasty as it gets. Um, and but communities were literally built by banks, um, with the understanding that hey, we're gonna fund these communities, but this is a white only community. I didn't believe it. I had to do the research. New York was filled with those um, suburbs where it was like, hey, it wasn't posted, but it was basically understood. And uh, you can find the research like crazy, which wasn't that long ago. It wasn't like this was in the 1800s, which really still isn't that long ago. But people don't understand that's it's that's a that's only about two generations away as far as family. And so, you know, when you're you're basically saying, hey, this is a nice place to live, but, you know, if you're white, you can stay there. If you're not too bad, then that affects, that would affect several family generations because, you know, does that make sense? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, and so absolutely. these are the things I had, and there's other things I can get into. I could talk all day on this, but um, there's things like that. And, you know, I'm big on equality of opportunity, but a lot of people are looking for equality of outcome, um, which I think is a whole nother discussion. Um, but, uh, anyways, well, you know, so. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this perfect example. You know, you know, all three of us go to the baseball game and obviously if you're not looking, you know, you, 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 you've got, you've got a, a black man, a brown man, a white man. Right. And, yeah. and we all go to the baseball game. Now, John, how tall are you? Five, nine. Okay. Uh, Lafayette. Six, one. Okay. Well, you said you're five, so I'm five, nine. So I'm the short one here. Right. No, I'm five nine. Yeah. Oh, you're five nine. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. be five eight for the sake of argument. Oh well, yeah. The, fe the fence happens to be five nine, and I can't see over it. But uh -huh. hey, it's equal. We're all there, right? Mm -hmm. But do we have the same equality? You can see the game. I can't. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I, all I need is for somebody to just to give me a, a small wooden plank that's at least two inches tall, so I can yeah. see the game. Now we've all got equality and and we're all equal because we're yeah. all we're all being the same. So it, it's not talking about a handout or anything like that. It's just it's a hand up. The, it's a hand up. Yeah. Leveling the playing field so that we all can, you know, and that's exactly what it is. But yeah. what, what I'm excited about and what I'm seeing is I'm seeing that this new generation, you know, like Lafayette's generation that's coming yeah. up is that they, they see, they, they see the importance in this. They actually get it. Right. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, systematically, uh, through, 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 as as we old geezers start dying off, and, and and you guys start picking up, that maybe we'll see a revolt. Well, I'm sure I'll never see it, but we'll see a revolt where everybody's treated equally and has the same equity and and everything that we do, and that may be the answer. You know. Yeah, you've talked about those resources. We've been talking about the resources of the police department. One resource that I've seen that has worked when it is working, and what I mean when it is working, I'm talking, referring to body cameras when they are on. Um, what do you think an effective body camera program should look like? Because I've seen some police departments, they're mandating that they have it and make sure that the officers have it on at all time or have it on when they're interacting with a citizen. And then I've also seen other police departments say they don't have the resources or some officers have body cameras and mysteriously when an officer involved shooting is going on or mysteriously the camera just went off uh what do you think about uh 
body effective body camera programs. What's yeah, abs on? absolutely. So when I and my first police chief job, we didn't have body cameras, and I was the chief who introduced body cameras to the organization. Good. And it was a it was a must have on anytime you're having a communication with 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 a citizen. Um, you know, there was a there was a a very clear. Uh, disciplinary issue if you, the camera was not turned on when you had an issue. But then you have this beautiful thing called technology that does fail at times. And it just always seems that when you need that body camera the most, it's when it really decides to actually fail. Well, you can only use that excuse so many times, right, before people start, before right. people don't start to believe it, right? So then it becomes a thing about of accountability. And, you know, and a lot of large agencies, people, it's, it's hard to keep people accountable because you have police unions who reverse decisions and things like this, you know, as a police chief, you know, you wield, you wield a lot of power in your organization, but to be quite honest with you, the police unions wield more power than you do. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what your disciplinary matrix says, regardless of, of, of what the issues that you stand on are, it's, are you going to be able to get the proper discipline for that officer violating your policy for your body camera program held accountable. That's where the issue really lies, you know? Um, but, but, you know, I, I think that very clear policies camera must be on, you know, the thing that kills law enforcement is the storage, the cloud storage to hold the material. If the camera is cheap, the camera is, is inexpensive to purchase. It's actually holding the storage of it, you know, that they cost a lot of money and a lot of agencies, especially, you know, 80% of law enforcement agencies across the nation are rural agencies, you know, made up of anywhere between one to 12 police officers per agency. They don't have the resources. They don't have the funding to be able to do that. And, and that's where we see a lot of issues. But I think as long as you have a very clear cut policy that states when and when those cameras will be on, you have to have a very good maintenance uh, uptake for those cameras to make sure that they're properly working at all times. And, you know, and the, the bad thing about the body cameras, it just depends on what style you have, because if I'm wearing your traditional body camera that goes here, you know, when I if, if it's an officer involved shooting and I draw my gun, what do you think that camera is going to see? It sees just this. Yeah. Now I better hope that I have somebody, another officer somewhere else that has right. their camera running. Because it's all, unfortunately, we live in a world that loves to believe perception instead of reality. Sure. And, you know, a lot of the times as a police chief, I've seen body footage that looked like, oh, my God, we're, 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 we're going to get sued. We're in the wrong. And then you see a different angle, a different body camera on. And you're like, hey, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> oh, OK. Sure. OK, this this makes sense. This is this is justifiable. So I think that the thing is, is that people, and, and I get it, people don't trust the police. I get it. I, I understand that. It's important for us to earn that trust back. And how do we earn that trust is by developing community relations with our community. And what I'm talking about is going out there and, and meeting the community, talking to the stakeholders, holding your agents, your officers accountable, holding yourself accountable. And, and, and if you made a mistake in that agency, you need to come out and just say you made a mistake, you know, right. own it. And got to earn that trust again. Yeah. I hope I answered your question, Lafayette. No, that was great. Um, we talked about the relationship between the community and the police department. And I believe that we need more representation, more officers 
uh, on the police task force. But how do we overcome the obstacle of recruiting minority officers when I believe as a black male, I, I personally would never do it um, just because I'm not putting my life in. I have a family, you know, so I, my hat goes off to police officers. But I think black men and black women are in two. They're in a conundrum. And I think it's two different things that, well, if I want to be a police officer, I'll be shunned by the black community because I'm going to go work for the enemy or if I go work as a police officer and I speak up, then I'm breaking down. I'm going against that blue wall that's supposed to be. I'm supposed to have the band of brothers back in uniform. So how do we break that down for minorities that say, hey, we need you on the police force to bring that diversity, to break down that culture, uh, to better work with the community? We need more minority officers. How do we overcome that challenge of recruiting minority officers to join the police force yeah you know and that was that was something that was hard to do 20 years ago it's something that's even harder to do today you know yeah. uh, and that's just to get anybody to do it now um you know when, when you live when you live in an area um like let's take let's take el paso texas for an example well the majority of us are hispanic so the majority of people you're going to get on your agency are going to be hispanic officers right um and, and I think the way the way you attract people, the way you attract new recruits is by showing them that it's not just all about the money, showing them what pause. Because that's one of the things that I did. We had a hard time recruiting before I got to that agency. Yeah. As we systematically started changing things and we started changing our reputation about being more community oriented, more community service, building programs that served the community like like no colors no labels the 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 uh, ice uh, the cool cops ice cream truck and i built a relationship and a partnership with blue bell ice cream we created an ice cream truck out of a police car out of a police uh, uh truck and we would go around handing out ice cream and people started seeing that we were putting them first and yeah. automatically people were attracted to that and, and more more hispanics more 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 uh you know, African-Americans and Oriental people started joining the agency just because of the actions where they were seeing us do the positive impact. What a lot of police chiefs don't want to do is they don't want to do the work. You know, this, this requires work. Sure. So, so the only way you're going to do that is by going out and building these relationships and talking to the minorities and trying to convince them that you need them to better your organization. And it does help especially when, when they see it as an action and not just words. So I have a re relatively recent new perspective because uh, we have a, a client for one of my com a company, for my family's company who has um, that hired us. They were, I can't mention who they are, but it was right. a, it was a um, police department here in Ohio. And basically the uh, mayor had recognized, had said, Hey, I think we have a toxic environment. Can you guys come in and look? And just get it. Just is it me? Am I making this up? I don't know. We've had too many officers leave, and I need to understand what's going on. Like good officers, they don't care if so much of the bad ones leave. Um, but he said we've had some stellar ones go to another place that pays less and is more dangerous. So um, like okay, so we came in and um, there's a report that people can Google the company name. It'll show up and Google apparently has my name all, or our name all over it. But because um, we didn't know that it's a part, apparently when we write a report for the department of the city, it's a uh, public, public thing. Doctor. So, yeah. 
didn't know that. Um, but anyways, so fast forward, um, we were all in the news for a little while, but it was a little town, so nobody nobody watches their news. But what we found though was the uh, the chief didn't expect this was a large problem within the culture of the of the police department, and it was causing a lot of stress on a lot of the officers. Now, unfortunately, there was no issues at this place with some of the mainstream things we see in the media with police departments and, you know, um, different cultures and so forth. That was, has not been an issue that we've seen in this department and they seem to have a good relationship with the community. But what I did notice was they had a hard time recruiting other good officers because, um, other departments would almost say, Hey, you guys should stay away from, such and such police department because that chief over there is ridiculous and you don't want to work for him. It's toxic. Don't go. And so community, great. The guys on on the within the department, the officers, the sergeants, and so forth, great. I, I met almost every single one of them. Um, but it was the chief that seemed to be causing the issue. Now they're going through a whole thing still because you know it's not that easy to just get rid of somebody. But um like well, it's very easy to that, get rid of the that, chief. Well, there's still a pro- there's still oh, yeah. a process there's still a process to that. He works for the city, so they're not part of the police union, which most people don't realize. Um, at least this in this situation, it's not. But uh, so yes, he's you know they're going through a process with that. But when you said they can't hire, or you have people have a hard time hiring, and then you mentioned that a lot of chiefs don't want to do the work. Is is it possible that there's also an issue then of leadership within a lot of departments that can maybe causing some of the issues with hiring quality individuals or um, causing extra stress on, you know, officers and so forth. Cause they, they've got to deal with their families, so forth. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, you had a, you had a police chief just recently and I'm not, I don't want to, I don't, I think, I don't want to say, I think it was in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. who uh, he, he's a police chief and went out and put, um, made up some uh printed out some kkk uh the swastika the swastika and stuff to put them on the I'm pretty sure it's in ohio yeah was it was it ohio yeah yeah i think so 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 you know it, it's 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 um yeah i mean a lot of a lot of police chiefs are the problem mm-hmm. but i'm gonna give you an example that community that i took over in east texas i was brought in as a change agent i was brought in as the first minority police chief to change mm-hmm. the culture of that organization some of the officers in the organization wanted to change. The majority of them didn't want it, you know, mm. because and then as as we as we painted a picture and started doing things and the image started to change, it, it looked like everything was great on the outside. But internally, we had a fight to to I mean, they didn't want the change. They didn't want the direction we were going into. They didn't want to be held accountable. They didn't want more minorities. They're like, this is, you know. We're, we're historically this is the way we are this is the way it's going to be we're not going to take orders from a spick like you we're not going to do this we're not going to do that and as we started bringing in younger and and, uh, and um my different minority police officers to come in the officers internally were doing everything they could to get rid of them and make their lives because they were so toxic mm. 
So the, here the role was reversed. You know, you had a you had a you had a chief like which was me, which wanted to make the change. You had city council that wanted to change. You had the community that wanted to change. But I had sixty somewhat officers that refused to budge. Mm, a lot. <laughs> you know, so it, the the toxicity comes internally. It can come from mm. leadership mm. because when I was there, I mean, before I got there that behavior was tolerated that behavior was okay it's okay to do that it's okay we don't need body cameras we don't need this we don't need rules we don't they didn't even have an internal affairs division we don't need this we don't need that uh, i will tell you that if you wanted to file a complaint against a police officer you had to fill out and i'm not kidding a 12 page document to file a mm -hmm. complaint on an officer um and it's also if you wanted to file a, com a compliment on the officer you had to fill out this 12 page report when I got there, I turned it into a one-page three-by-four card to file a complaint or a compliment. Made it very simple. Mm. That was it. Um, also, like I said, with the change of leadership, when I left, I had that department fully staffed. First time in the history of the agency ever fully staffed. Um, so, so yeah, to answer your question, I mean, it, it comes from all levels. It, it's, it's, it, it starts with the leadership. But sometimes the leadership is trying to do the right thing, mm -hmm. but it's the people that are following that don't want the right thing. So it makes the, the leadership's the leader's job almost impossible. And then you got unions, so you can't necessarily make changes like you need. Yep. So basically, it's a whole systematic issue. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you see, the chief uh, can, is the chief. The chiefs are never we're never represented by um, by mm -hmm. unions. Yeah. We may we may have a contract. But, uh, you know, yeah. most police chief contracts, there's usually an out clause for the city that says, you know, as long as we both agree and they may be a severance package. Uh, goodbye. Don't yeah. say anything bad about us. We won't say anything bad about you. Get the hell out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and in my case, you know, I had I had about 60 police officers that wanted my head. And I mean, even if I if I breathed, they were filing a complaint against me. I'm like, OK, you know, uh, and, and, and it was all very simple just because the color of my skin and because I was trying to bring unity and mm -hmm. equality to everybody. And it is what it is. I said, you know what? I, I, I've done everything that I can. You know, I was named the 20, uh, the 2017 humanitarian of the year by the NAACP. Um, so I know I did my job. I did what I had to do, but you know what? <laughs> I can't do this yeah. anymore. So we bounced, you know? Yeah. I, I have an interesting question. What would you say, uh, to those who say recreational drugs should be legalized uh, to reduce drug-related crimes, especially uh, to those states that have legalized marijuana, weed, uh, or the states have legalized medicinal marijuana, yet you still have people that are in jail, uh, have been in jail for years in those states that have, that have been legalized. And they're still in jail in a state that has been legalized, that same drug they went to jail for. So what would you say to to those people that, that are campaigning for recreational drugs to be legalized to reduce drug-related crimes? Well, <laughs> man, you put me on the spot, didn't you? Um, so my professional opinion on that is, you know, when, when I was younger, I wanted everybody locked up, you know, uh, you had you had one joint, one one gram of one ounce or whatever of marijuana. You had to go to jail. As I got older and I started realizing things, you know, you, you can actually you ruin a person's life. One joint, 
they can ever qualify for financial aid. And they yeah. become in the, they become the system. And then that's the gateway drug that took them down a spiral. But it really, really wasn't the drug because they don't smoke drugs. They don't do drugs anymore. But now they're in the system and, and they can't be part of anything else. Right. So I agree on the medicinal purposes. If, if you can find, you know, like we'll use marijuana, marijuana, you know, it's, it's good for arthritis. It's good for that. So they say, I don't know. Um, OK, you know, there, there's a medical research. There's research. There's this and that. OK, you know, legalize it. And you know what? Let's let's cut out the let's cut out the jail time um, for a lot of these drugs. You know, I mean, you got people. I mean, but where do you draw the line? You know, I mean, it's like, well, what's recreational? Is heroin recreational? I mean, is there Absolutely. some kind is there some kind of medicinal purpose? I guess you could say there is because heroin is is kind of a subcommittee of morphine. So it could help with pain because it it just numbs you. Right. So, I, I mean, I don't know where do you draw the line? Yeah. But I do think that maybe we should decriminalize um, a lot of the drugs. Uh, not when I say a lot, I don't mean a lot. For me, when I'm talking about marijuana, that's what I'm. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I, I think you should decriminalize it. And anybody that did not cre- did not create commit a violent offense, um, and that's you know an assault, a sexual assault, or anything like that. If you committed it while you were intoxicated under the influence, and you need to stay in jail. But if you were walking down the street, you know, us three are walking down the street and the cops pull us over for whatever reason, because we look suspicious because, you know, why are two men of color hanging out with this white guy? What's going on here? You know, um, and, and you pass <laughs> a weird down. looking group <laughs> yeah, you know? and, and, and you find, you know, different age groups here. One's 37, one's 48, one's 27. What the hell? Um, you know, so you find, uh, you know, marijuana and us. It's like, well, you know what? OK, you know, slap on the wrist. Go on your merry way. Sure. 10 years ago, if that happened, you know, they'll lock us up for five, 10 years just for walking down the street with joints in our pocket. When I do this in LA. I grew up in Southern California. And when I was a young kid, there was the crack epidemic. And I understand how that just that drug alone just killed families because you're talking yeah, mothers them. and so forth went from working to not making any money. And now kids are figuring out how do I survive? But on the same time, they got they got the the solution to that was the three strike rule, where basically, uh, if you got caught, you're going you get life in prison essentially, um, or something close to it, nearly impossible to get out. And I would almost argue that that just escalated the issue to another level, versus you know what I'm right. And so, and then how do you recover from that as a community? I mean, come on. Well, you see, and that just goes back to the earlier conversation about equality. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, where's the equality in that? There, there isn't enough. Because look, we all, we all know the the reason crack was created was because it was, you know, traditionally supposed to be a poor man's cocaine. True. Okay? That's what it was for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, who's the majority of the poor men? Minorities, right? And it was supposed to impact the African-American community way more. The history of Chicago and L.A. I mean, it, it's all there. It's, it, it's there. And then you go to L.A., you create the three strikes rule. Well, who's the majority of the people that are getting life sentences? Minorities. You know, so, so you've totally disproportionized this whole equality mm-hmm. thing and it's not working. You know, so while and I'll be honest with you, back in the day when it passed, I was like, yeah, we need that in Texas. We need that in Texas. And now I'm like, oh my God, no, that's the stupidest thing ever, you know? Right. Um, 
Yeah, because we look at it with a basically lack of empathy. Because I would have been the same way. Like, I, you took the drug, right? But at the same time, to understand the situation, right? I'm not saying someone's innocent because they took it. That I'm not saying that. But at the same time, you, you're not. You're making the issue worse by stripping everybody out of out of a family forever, and now you're putting kids into another system. Whether you know whether it's a foster system or whatever, so it's not it's not a solution. Is my point? It's just a it's not even a band aid. I don't even know what you would call that. But no, and, and that's what I'm saying. You know, it just boils mm-hmm. down to a lot of systems being broken. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, cocaine used to be a rich man's drug. You know, back in the '80s when it first popped out. You know, in the '70s, you know, it was it was a rich man's drug. So. How can you say it's a poor, drugs are a poor man's problem as well? It's not. It's an everybody problem. Right. How, how, I, how do we, you know, how, how do we stop the drug? How do we stop the? How do we stop the use of drugs when the United States is the number one consumer of illegal drugs? And then I, I would wonder would they make the same three strikes rule with the opiates? Right. We're in, we live in Dayton, Ohio. It's like the capital. I mean, trafficking and um, the opiate crisis. It's terrible. Narcan is being used every hour it's terrible but i've only i've not i've not i've only pretty much heard of white guys and women who have been having these od issues i could be wrong i haven't actually looked at the statistics but as far as i can tell from all the stories i hear it's primarily white so would we have made the same three strikes rule in that right i don't know i doubt it but well you know without making this a a racial issue i mean let's, let's look at it let's look at it let's look at it this way would they have issued the three strike rule? Never. Would they right now that op- the the uh, the opiates? It's an epidemic. It's a oh, pandemic. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. Crack crack cocaine. Oh, lock those guys up. Three lock strike them rule. Up. Send them up. Lock them up a hill. Yeah. Well, why? Because they're minorities. Could get rid of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's what I'm talking about. It's like, look. Yeah. The opiate crisis, the crack crisis. It's all a crisis. Drugs. It, yeah. it doesn't matter what it is. It, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be decided on on color. Shouldn't be decided on race. It's an everybody problem. It's a human being problem. Mm-hmm. So how do we fix it? And, yes. and we need to attack it in the same way. All of them. Mm-hmm. You know. You know why? Why are they offering? Um, you know why is Narcan available for opiates and and why is treatment centers being open for the opiate crisis but nothing yes. for the crack and the heroin and anything right. else. One exactly. goes to jail, the other goes to rehab. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So gotcha. that was kind of my point. Was yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're hammering Narcan because people right. always ask me, "What's your opinion on Narcan?" Because we're just giving out to people who just want to die. I'm like, well, they don't necessarily want to die. They have an issue and they have no idea right. how to fix it. Well, you see, and and, and, and that back up, you know, drug issue is usually connected to some kind of mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be connected to some kind of other, you know, uh, work related injury, and you got hooked on them. But mm-hmm. but you know. The majority of the time, we have to really concentrate on mental health. You know, everybody suffers from mental health issues. I know every morning, I, I mean, I, I struggle for mental health issues every other hour because something's just like, oh my God, you know. Um, and, and we just handle it differently, but we need to start paying more attention yeah. to mental health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And all of these things can be summed up into one word adversity. Yeah. Um, and how do you overcome it? How do you overcome that? You created a leadership development program talking about leading through adversity. Mm-hmm. Tell our audience what that is. Why did you come up with it? And how is it helping leaders overcome the adversities in their life? 
Yeah, you know, so I created Leading Through Adversity based out of my experience in East Texas. You know, um, here we had this great thing going. I'm thinking to myself, how the hell is everything so right and everything is so wrong? Um, it's like, how, how I'm the police chief. I'm one of these guys. How come I can't get them to follow? And I had nobody to talk to. I had nobody to, you know, I couldn't go talk to the mayor. I couldn't go talk to city council. I couldn't talk to the officers because they couldn't stand me. I couldn't, I couldn't go talk to my wife because she didn't understand it. I, I, I was kind of alone. So after I left, uh, you know, I said, you know what, there's got to be something. So I came up with, I came up with leading through adversity. And, you know, I, I sent out some feelers through my network, you know, just to other police chiefs and saying, look, hey, man, if you're ever in, in any type of situation where you just need to talk and you feel like you're alone and you have nobody there in your corner, you know, pick up the phone. And, and that's how it started. You know, I started having police chiefs call me and like, hey, man, we heard that you went through this. I'm going through this. How do I how do I fix it? So before you knew it, it started picking up some steam. And then I started putting some leadership development courses on how to deal with the adversity of dealing with the unknown and dealing with issues that you may be confronted with and, you know, or, or created some new programs for new leaders. Because when you become a leader, everybody tells you how wonderful and great things are going to be, but they always forget to tell you all the headaches that come with it. Like all of a sudden you may become the most popular guy in the world because of what you can do for me, you know, and not because of, you're a great leader, but I'm going to see how much I can milk out of you. So we created leadership development courses. And now, you know, well, we, we started off with five non-paying clients. Now we're at 38 paying clients. And they include, they include chiefs of police, uh, CEOs, uh, school superintendents, and it's all over the nation. And we're picking up some really good momentum. I mean, you know, we just, we just did something in, in, um, in uh, in Phoenix, uh, in, in the Phoenix, Arizona area, where this one police chief had an idea, but he knew he wasn't going to be able to sell it to his officers. So we went down there as a consulting firm and pitched the idea for him. And the officers thought it was a great greatest thing ever. But we didn't come up with it. We just did the pitch. It was his idea. But mm-hmm. had they known it was his idea, they would have hung him, you know. So, so that's kind of what we do. And then, you know, we're, we're doing some executive searches now and, and, and hopefully trying to help agencies and communities pick that right police chief that's going to take them to their next, to the, to, to where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So, so that's what leading through adversity is all about. Awesome. Those of you that are watching, listen to this, purchase Eddie's book, uh, Unmasking Leadership, What They Don't Tell You and sign up for those leadership development programs through Leading Through Adversity. The program name is Leading Through Adversity. We also want you to connect and follow Eddie on social media. You can connect him with him on his website, uh, JesusEddieCampa.com. Those of you that are listening, J-E-S-U-S-E-D-D-I-E-C-A-M-P-A.com. It's his website. His Instagram handle is at leading underscore through underscore adversity. He's also, you can find him on LinkedIn, uh, Jesus Eddie Campa, and on Facebook, uh, Jesus Eddie Campa. Also, stay connected with us here on social media, on our various social media platforms, Unscripted Authentic Leadership Podcast on Facebook, our Instagram handle at Unscripted Leadership. You also can find us on LinkedIn on Unscripted Authentic Leadership Podcast. You can stream 
uh, this episode and all of our 49 other episodes of our podcast on any podcast platform from Apple to Spotify, our high radio, Stitcher, so forth. Connect with us on our website, unscripted-leadership.com, where you can sign up for one of our mastermind groups. You can go there and find out more information about that. You also can find some merch there on our website there. When you sign up for our unscripted email group, you will receive a 10% off merch code. This has been another amazing episode of the Unscripted Authentic Leadership Podcast. Again, thank you to our special guest, Eddie, for all of the great information that he shared Someone will be developed and better empowered by that information. We thank you for tuning in again. We pray that you be believe that God has called you to be. As always, we're here to build bridges and not walls. Bridges connect and walls divide. Until next time, God bless you.